Welcome to Mostly Books Meets. We're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series, we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets, and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life, and we hope you'll join us for the journey. this week I'm speaking to award-winning author Mick Heron. Mick is the author of the best-selling Slough House novels which have won two Crime Writers Association daggers, have been published in over 20 languages and are the basis of a major forthcoming TV series starring Gary Oldman as Jackson Lamb. He's also the author of the Sarah Tucker Zoe Bohem series and the standalone novels Reconstruction, Nobody Walks and This Is What Happened. The John Le Carrier of his generation according to fellow crime writer Val McDermott Mixed books were a slow burn, with Slow Horses, the first in the series, make it to number one in an incredible seven years after its initial publication. Mick now has a huge army of fans eagerly await every new edition of the Slough House series. Mick, welcome to Mostly Books Meets. Thanks, Sarah. Lovely to be here. It's great to have you on. I've been trying to get you on our podcast for a while, because we've obviously met each other a number of times through the book trade and through some very spurious tenuous links in our lives mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's but just more importantly a bookshop that's the big link more importantly the bookshop and it's just lovely to be able to actually have a chat with you on the podcast so thank you so much for oh you're me. welcome lovely to be here so as i do with everybody i'd like to start off by going back to your childhood you were born and raised in newcastle i understand that's right, yes. I wanted to be close to my mother, and that's where she was at the time. So uh, <laughs> that's where I grew up. I went to school there. I went to, well, it was initially a grammar school in the West End of Newcastle. Went comprehensive about halfway through my school career. And yeah, I, I often say, I mean, I had a, you know, schooling was fine, but I often say it was the public library system that educated me more than any other part of my formal education, including university. That's so interesting. And, you know, it's a theme I hear time and time and time again. It's so lovely to hear. It's funny because in the bookshop, people come into the shop and they say to their children, oh, we're just off to the library. And then they kind of look at me as if they've just told a really guilty secret. <laughs> and I always say something, and I never apologise about going to the library because there's proven research to show that if, if a town's got a library, that they're much more likely to have, you know, a wider bank of readers. So it benefits the shop that the library's there. But it's just lovely on the podcast talking to people about their memories of the library. What do you remember about your, your library as a child? I always remember them. I mean, I wouldn't have phrased it as such at the time, but I remember them as kind of places of sanctuary. You know, you could absent yourself from real life and surround yourself with books. And the syllabus of a library is infinite. I mean, you're allowed to take down any book you want from the shelves and, and lose yourself in it. You could take it home. I sometimes get readers apologising to me for having read books from libraries. I have no problem with it at all. I'm an ardent library user myself. And libraries expand readership, and readership is what all authors want. And, you know, the more readers you have, inevitably, the more sales you have. I mean, it's just there. But that's, you know, that's the least important part of it. When people need books and, you know, can't necessarily afford them, I think that's almost a denial of their human rights. So libraries are are hugely important simply to allow people who wouldn't otherwise be able to afford access to books to give them that access. David Cameron once famously said, you know, there was no need for libraries anymore because we have the internet. Possibly one of the stupidest things he ever said. And that's, you know, there's quite a lot of competition for the stupidest thing David Cameron ever said. (laughs) I totally agree. Yeah, I mean, for anybody that reads books, 
yes, there's an option to read things on a screen, but nothing quite replaces the actual physical book itself. And especially, I think, for, for young people and for children, I think being able to just have something in your hand that, that just pulls you away from, especially in this day and age, from screens and, and technology, it can only be a good thing. So I think it's an impossible question for someone that was clearly a big reader. Do you remember um, the first book you read or a book that had a really big impact on you as a child? Uh, I don't, I'm afraid. Not really. I learned to read young because my mother was a, an infant school teacher and uh, I was more or less reading by the time I started my formal education. She told me the other day that when I was six, I had a reading age of 12. And I'm not sure whether I've maintained that kind of disparity. If so, my reading age now is very, very old. <laughs> I'm very good at reading now. I do remember reading the standard, you know, books that were given to children to teach them to read. You often hear Janet and John, don't you? But mine were Dick and Dora. I don't know whether this was very common. Dick and Dora. I've never quite dared Googling it now because I'm worried what might come up. <laughs> one of the standard, you know, Dick has a ball, Spot is a dog, Dick throws the ball, you know, that kind of thing. And the one book that I do kind of remember, and I have I have no idea of the author or title, was a book which did involve a very large dog, which at some point developed wings. This is a kind of, you know, fairy story type book. And I remember the dog being shot down by people with bows and arrows. It was a terrible moment, terrible oh. moment. Dog survived, sorry, spoilers, but it's necessary. I don't want to have to issue trigger warnings before this. Um, and that's all I remember of the book. And it's one that, you know, it's some little part of it is forever lodged deep in the recesses of my memory. I mean, they didn't have young adult books back then, and it certainly would have been classed as such, but it would have been for, I don't know, 9, 10, 11-year-olds, something like that. Speaking to teenagers these days about the fact that YA just wasn't a thing when you were young, when I was young, it, a lot of them can't get their heads around. And it's such a wonderful genre these days. So I think the teenagers are very, very lucky to have them available to them. Well, it was still uh, it was still around then. They just didn't call it that. You know, there were books for children and books for adults. And I was a great reader of the Malcolm Savile novels. And some of his books would have definitely been classed as YA now. There was a lovely writer, Catherine Findlay, wrote, um, I don't think she's she's published at the moment, Books with titles like The Cry of the Peacock, I think, was one. And these are obviously aimed at what would now be a young adult audience, although I, I suspect the, the sort of the feel to them, the kind of mood that they would inculcate was probably different than YA novels would be now. My feeling is, and I don't read YA novels, that they're geared towards coping with you know issues that confront young people now. And that kind of book wasn't around, I don't think, when I was growing up. I mean, no, it's, you're it's, absolutely it's right. tactile issues, but they weren't kind of there as a, a sort of guide in any way. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. From what I see, they kind of fall into one of two camps. They either go down the kind of the science fiction fantasy type route, or they do deal with quite a lot of kind of cutting edge issues. Mm. So you were at school in Newcastle and then you went to university. So you, did you move to Oxford for university? Oh, I did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a bit far to travel. <laughs> yeah. The fact is, I've never moved away since, which wasn't so much a conscious choice. I mean, I like it very much here, but it was more a kind of partly inertia and a lack of direct ambition. I mean, I didn't want to go back to Newcastle at that point because it was the 80s. It was an unemployment black spot. There was nothing there, really. I was there just last weekend and it's a, it's a beautiful city now and uh, it works in very many ways. But back then it didn't. And I didn't want to go to London because London was big and I wouldn't have known. I'd just become lost there. You know, I think that large cities can be like that. If you're rootless, and I, I would have been if I'd gone there, I didn't know what I was going to do. I mean, I wanted to write. 
I was playing around, you know, with verse, but that's not really something that's going to have, allow you to stand on your own feet uh, in a capital city the size of London. So I would have been, you know, I would have been damaged very quickly. I think. So I was going to ask you, because you studied English at university. So it sounds like you obviously had an idea in your head somewhere that you wanted to potentially write at some point. Did that start to appear as an ambition whilst you were at university or did it come afterwards before? When did that start to appear? Before, I guess. I mean, I've written stories as a teenager. That kind of dried up in late teens, which is standard. I think that's pretty much the norm. Started writing verse, getting interested in poetry and writing poetry when I was at college and for a few years afterwards. And so all through that time, I knew that I wanted to be a writer of some sort. I didn't really think of it in terms of being a career. At the same time, I wasn't particularly interested in having a career. I mean, I had a job eventually. I spent a few years kind of moving around doing not very much. And then I started getting jobs. I had a job, which lasted quite a long time. But essentially, it was something that, you know, paid the bills while I would pursue my ambition to write, which is what I was doing in the evenings after work. So is that the one that you commuted to London? To? I read somewhere that you were you were writing on a commute. Is that correct? Oh, I, I, I hear that a lot, but it's not true. Oh. Um, I did <laughs> I did work in London. I mean, I worked in Oxford for quite a long time at a job as a, as a sub-editor and then got a very similar job with a different organisation in London. So that's when I started commuting. I did not write on the commute, though, because I find writing a very personal thing and less calm than you might expect. I mean, I mutter and, you know, pace when I'm writing and you you don't want to be doing that on a commuter train. It does upset the other passengers. So, no, I mean, the job that I had in London that, that I commuted for, I got the job the same week I got a publishing contract for my first published novel down Cemetery Road. So I suppose that was a bit of a, a life-changing week, really. Mm. And then I did that job for 15 years, which was how long it took me to establish myself as a writer enough to be able to pay the bills. Wow. That's incredible that they happen within the same week. Mm. Uh, I, I had no And idea. nothing happened for 15 years after that. So, isn't it? <laughs> Well, that's it. It's interesting when I was, you know, doing research into you and your background, the thing I mentioned in the introduction, the fact that, you know, one of your books came to number one seven years after it was published. I mean, it's just, it's such a great message to give to people that, you know, these things don't happen overnight and it involves a lot of hard work and perseverance. And did you always know that you were, I suppose it's a stupid question, I was going to say, did you always know you were going to make it? Did you always have faith that it was worth the time and effort to do it? I certainly didn't have faith that I was going to make it. In fact, in many ways, it was the realisation that I wasn't, which was quite liberating because there came a point and it was after the publication of the fourth novel, Reconstruction, my first standalone. And while I was writing the next book, obviously, you know, I kind of write all the time. So by the time Reconstruction was published, I was, you know, halfway through the next book, Smoke and Whispers. When Reconstruction just kind of vanished into a chasm the way all my previous novels had, I thought, okay, that was the one that I thought had a chance of being successful. It was quite a big story. It was more ambitious than anything I'd done before. And when that didn't work, I just thought, okay, this is what I am. You know, I work for a living and I write in the evenings and I, I get published and I have books on my shelf. So I'm fulfilling my ambition and I'm never going to do it's unlikely that I'll do more than that. But that made, I was fine with that, you know, because I I think, and this is the advice I tend to give young writers when, when they're foolish enough to ask me for advice, that the only reason for writing is self-fulfillment. If you're writing in order to get rich or to become famous or any of those kinds of reasons, then forget it, you know, for riches, you know, buy a lottery ticket, you've got far more chances of making fortune that way. So writing should really be the province of people for whom not writing is more difficult than writing is. You know, I mean, it's such a 
a hard track to follow, at least it can be, that um, there's no other reason for doing it other than that it makes you happy or it, it makes you less unhappy than you would otherwise be. I'm, I'm looking for it makes me happy. I really enjoy it. But I do know that it can be very, very difficult for people to pursue. So there's, there's no reason for doing it other than your own personal idea of, of self-worth and everything that goes with it. So that's where I was at that point. And that was quite liberating. So when the idea, which came to me while I was working on Smoke and Whispers, when the idea for the Slow Horses novel came to me, I thought, yeah, that's fine. I can do that. I mean, it struck me as maybe being a bit offbeat and, you know, unlikely to be successful. It was too damaged to me, I suppose, low key. Um, I thought, well, that's fine because I only have myself to please. I can do whatever I like. I don't think I make very good career decisions, inverted commas, career decisions, you know, even as far as writing is goes. That's the only one I think that I made that I am really proud of. It's that I didn't put Smoke and Whispers aside and immediately start work on this novel that I had an idea for. So it was the best part of a year before I started writing Slow Horses. And during that time, you know, it had been much on my mind. So it was a novel that I approached having a fairly clear idea of what I was going to be doing and knowing the differences between it and what I'd done before then. All of which I think paid off and made it a, a better book than any I'd written before then. Yeah, and the thing all about that particular series of books and the reason why they are constantly on the shelves of both in my bookshop is that they pull the reader in and my partner isn't a big reader but he reads your books because he finds the characterizations really interesting and he you know he gets that kind of imagery in his head and I think that's something that all of the full series does really well so at what point did you say do you know what actually I'm now going to stop working my jobs and I'm actually going to be a writer full-time when did that happen that was um, in 2016, at which point I was starting to be published by John Murray. Mm-hmm. And at that point, I realised that I could take a sabbatical, an unpaid sabbatical of, uh, I think it was four months. Um, and I thought, OK, I'm going to try that. I knew I could you know, manage four months without a salary coming in because I was starting to earn a bit from the writing. And I did so. And what I had been worried about giving up work is not so much the, the money. I knew that by that stage, I would more or less be OK, at least for the next I think it was two years I decided, possibly two and a half. I was just worried about becoming unsocialised. You know, I mean, my daily life was out in the world. I was on trains every day. I was in a, a big office with you know, lots of people around. Uh, and I worried about taking that away and also taking away the fact that I was in London every day, which is where the books are set. I worried that they might affect the writing. So I needed to give it a go before taking the leap. So I took a four-month sabbatical and around about 11 o'clock, on the first morning, I thought, yeah, this is fine. I can do this. Um, and then a number of other um, things happened. Translation offers mostly, which suddenly made the finances look, you know, much easier than they otherwise did. So as soon as I got back from my sabbatical, I handed my notice in. I worked for another three months. And then in February 2017, that's when I started becoming a, a full-time writer. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, actually not that long ago, I mean, just a few years ago. It's interesting what you say about that, because, yes, I can imagine, I think a lot of people have quite a romantic notion about the idea of being a writer. You know, you kind of waft into the room and you, you mm. get creative. And But in fact, you know, there's, there's different people obviously approach it in different ways, but there's an awful lot to the job, not just writing books, but all, uh, you know, getting your head around where the idea is going to come from and then all the kind of practical elements of the publishing world and then afterwards doing this kind of thing, chatting to people. There's, there's quite a lot of different things involved. Did you find that you, or do you find that you kind of work in a structured way? Do you have effectively a nine to five kind of office day where you write or do you write when it takes you? How do you work? I know there's no right or wrong answer to this. I think for me, routine is quite important, if only because 
I'm kind of institutionalised that way, you know, having worked so long in offices. So it's kind of nine to five, but I don't sit and work nine to five. That's just when I'm sort of open for business, as it were. I uh, I'll turn the laptop on as soon after nine o'clock as possible. I find that as soon as I've read whatever I finished writing yesterday, you know, I read the paragraph or sentence or whatever it was that I managed to get down the previous day, then my brain is on, you know, and even if I having read that, I just go off and have a cup of coffee and sit on the sofa and read somebody else's book for a bit. I know that the work is starting to happen and sooner or later, usually sooner to be fair, I will get up, return to the laptop and start writing. But I don't sit down for long stretches at a time. I mean, I, I'm awful, really. I can I can write a sentence and just drift off and do something else and come back and write another sentence. But all the time I'm drifting off and sort of wafting around the room or playing solitaire, which I do quite a lot on the laptop. <laughs> Part of the brain is problem solving. It's the mulling over bit. You know, I, I like the least active parts of, <laughs> of work and any bit that, you know, your brain can kind of do on its own. And I'm all in favour of that. Yeah, it's like that passive thought process, isn't it? It's yeah. funny, I was talking about that with my team not that long ago because I'm a firm believer if you've got to make a difficult decision. Sometimes trying to force yourself to make that decision is a bad idea. But in fact, if you just let it kind of simmer somewhere above your head, at some point the idea should fall or the decision should be made. <laughs> Absolutely. I find that problems of plotting, you know, when I have a tricky plot point coming up, I don't sit down and worry at it. I just kind of, if I write down the problem, or I just express it, put it in a, in a sentence, this is the difficulty that I'm having, and I just say it to myself. I then forget about it. And within a couple of days, the answer will arrive. Always has to answer far, touch wood. And that's, you know, that's, what did you say? Passive thought process. I like that. Yeah. I think that's pretty much my entire life, really. It's, it's <laughs> largely passive, and it's certainly a process. So, yeah. <laughs> like the magic eye paintings remember those where you said oh yeah that kind of thing <laughs> so obviously you're, you're clearly a reader yourself I mean do you read a mixture of genres do you read fiction do you read non-fiction or are you particularly focused on one area I rarely need non-fiction I should read a lot more non-fiction than I do I read fiction and poetry and that's probably about 99% of my reading this year I've never done this before I'm keeping a list of all the books I read and I think there's only one non-fiction book on it I might be wrong about that yeah and what was the last book you read it's a reread it was um, Barbara Vine's Astor's book like a lot of people during the the lockdowns last year I I did a lot of comfort reading and for me comfort reading was rereading favorite authors but also ones that I hadn't you know been in touch with as it were for quite a long time and uh, Barbara Vine I think Ruth Rendell saved her best work for the for the Barbara Vine pseudonym and there's some tremendous novels she wrote without name and Astor's book is one of them and um uh, a lovely baroque, I suppose is the word, novel with all sorts of hidden mysteries in it. Some things you don't even realise are mysteries until they're sold for you. You know, it's delightful. Partly an historical novel. I suppose entirely an historical novel now because it's probably in the 1990s. But partly said at the beginning of the uh, 20th century and partly what was then contemporary. And uh, yeah, just a, an absolute delight. And also just by strange coincidence, I had forgotten this when I picked it up. I had a very, had its roots in Denmark, or at least in Danish people. And I was just a few days back from Denmark when I started reading it. I'd spent a weekend there. So there was that nice connection there with my own recent life. The nice link. It's interesting what you say about during the last 18 months, kind of reverting to more comfort reading. I hear from a lot of people, a lot of people found that. I certainly did. I went to my proper uplit mode where I was reading very nice happy fiction um, but there was an awful lot of people that just couldn't read at all I mean it's obviously 
strange, strange times we're living in. But for those of us that read, it's it's, it's definitely been a place of solace, I think. Mm. Now, I have a theory, which you may or may not agree with, that everybody that's a reader has a book that has had an impact on them. It might be a book, it might be a series of books, and it might be professionally or might be personally. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it? No, no, I don't. I mean, I don't think there's any book that has changed, my, as a reader, I don't think there's any book that has changed my life. I mean, fiction has changed my life, without a doubt. I think I'd be a very different person if I wasn't a reader. And, you know, my career, obviously, would have been, would have been different. But a single book, no. I mean, that might have been possible when I'd read, you know, 10 books, when I'd read 100 books. I think it's, for me, I feel that it's stopped being possible once you get much past that, because you then have to start categorising. You know, my favourite book of this kind of novel is that. My favourite book of poetry is is that. And even that stops being possible after a while. You have to start saying, well, my favourite poet is this. And then, you know, one of my favourite poets is my favourite male Irish poet is, you know, and we just have to completely go into these kind of subcategories. I don't like making lists, really, I, I think, except for, you know, to-do lists. I'm quite neurotic about that sort of thing. But lists of favourite things, I think I stopped having favourite things quite a long time ago. Interesting, speaking to small people, you can always ask them what their favourite colour is. You know, mm. a child of four, they'll always know what their favourite colour is or their favourite book is because you get older, like you say. Those things become a lot more difficult. I'm just interested because I just think it's fascinating because some people immediately jump to an answer and others, like yourself, don't have it. So I just think it's a fascinating question to ask. So let's come on to your books then. Obviously, you've got the two series and you've had some standalone novels. So the latest book in your Slough House series is Slough House, which came out in hardback, I think it was February this year, and came out in paperback in September. And obviously the series is in the process. I was going to ask you actually where we are with this, because it's being turned into a television series starring Gary Oldman. So where is that in the process at the moment? It is. Uh, where we're at with that? Well, they're about to wrap filming on the second series. so. That's Dead Lions. So Slow Horses is undergoing, I think they call it post-production. It's when they're getting everything ready for showing it on TV. Dead Lions is still being filmed, although I think they're kind of tidying it up now. I think most of the big scenes have all been shot. Hopefully both of those series will be shown. I believe the term is dropped because they're talking on a streaming service. Next year, uh, maybe spring and then again in the winter, but I don't know. Things change very, very quickly and more so over the past couple of years because of COVID, you know, and delays uh, to commencing the filming and then interruptions to the filming because of sickness but as far as I know you know at least one of their shows will will be shown next year. And how did it feel when you found out that it was going to happen and also with such an amazing cast I mean Gary Oldman is not just the only big name in in, in this TV series it's going to be quite spectacular. Far from it I mean once he joined the cast it was clear that this was going to be big yeah that that was a big moment but Overall, you know, I I signed, the option was brought up before the third book was published, before Real Tigers was published. So we're talking about, you know, seven years ago. Mm. And uh, I was told at the time that it would all go very, very slowly. And then suddenly it would go very, very quickly indeed. You know, it's like the process by which you go bankrupt. So in a way, you know, every time something was going to happen, I'd kind of known that a bit before I was told, look, you know, nothing's happening, but we're pretty sure something is going to happen, you know, within the next few months, because all the negotiations involved drag on. I mean, the difference between having the discussion with the producer and saying, okay, and there were several companies, production companies were interested, having decided which one we were going to go with. It was then a full 12 months before the contract was signed. It took that long to draw up the contract, part of which was my fault because when you're dealing with a series of novels, it's character rights that really 
or, or the driver for the contract rather than the individual novels. I mean, that part, they're part of it too, but it's essentially it's the characters. Now, I had a couple of characters appeared in Reconstruction who then found themselves in the, in the Slow Horses world. And I remember saying this at one point during a meeting, thinking, oh, you'll be interested in this lawyers <laughs> and there were, you know it was a phone conversation going on but a transatlantic phone conversation going on with various people involved and there was suddenly a dead silence <laughs> and I realized that actually what I just said has made everything 10 times more complicated than it was before so uh, yeah I think that alone held things up for a few months but anyway you know by the time the contract was signed you know there was a few more years where nothing much was going on but I was told oh, we've got interest from you know some important people and more important people came on board, the more it was clear that this was, you know, it was actually going to happen in the long run. So there have been some lovely moments, like when, uh, when, when Gary Oldman signed up and other members of the cast were absolutely fantastic. But it's all been kind of staggered. You know, by the time I've, I've been on set a few times and watched and film it, and it's wonderful. But part of me feels quite detached from it. I mean, this is, you know, it's clearly my work at the heart of it. But I was writing that stuff, the stuff that they're filming sort of 10 years ago. And it feels, in ways, it feels a little distant, which I'm glad about. I'm just enjoying it as a, as a non-participant. You know, I just feel like I'm observing this and, uh, and having great fun doing it. And I don't feel possessive or proprietorial about the material that they're working with. I think it's been transformed into something else by people who know what they're doing and do it very, very well. You know, it's great fun. Yeah, I bet. I, I was going to ask you actually about that, because obviously you've got a number of books in this series now. And it must be very strange, because obviously characters evolve over the course of the series and you learn more about them and, and their lives change so it must be something quite strange but also probably quite nice to be able to kind of go back to seeing them how they were towards the beginning but then also knowing in your mind you know what's changed uh, there is that yes and um you know there are characters who die in the books and some of the actors aren't terribly pleased about this <laughs> <laughs> there's nothing i can do about it and they talk to you know the the scriptwriters and the producers and the director and they all say well don't look at us it's mixed fault <laughs> And am I right thinking that you were involved in some of the writing for the TV show as well? Is that correct? Not, not quite. I was in the writer's room and I've been part of the kind of planning of it, which has been great fun. Thoroughly enjoyed it. But I'm not doing any of the actual writing. That's all happening with other people. But I've been consulted at, at every stage of the, the script writing process and kept involved. And the people are treating the material with great respect. Obviously, the material has to change. I mean, the, the whole narrative of storytelling is different when you're using a camera rather than a quill pen, which is what I favour with um, ink made from ostrich blood. Um, but despite that, you know, the, I mean, it's the characters. They're keeping the characters the way they are in the books. And that, that's the heart of the stories, I think. Uh, I'm more interested in the characters than in the plots. So you keep them there, then everything, the integrity of the, the original material is still intact, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. So, obviously, as I just said, the latest book in the series came out in September in paperback. What are you actually working on at the moment? Because I presume the one that's coming out next year is probably with the publishers now, right? It is, not very long. I delivered the last book to my agent, who was the first or second person to read it. My partner's the first person to read it on September the 10th. And then shortly after that, it went off to publishers. I'm not doing anything at the moment. Um, I'm kind of wandering around in a vague sense of unconnected uh, lethargy at the moment. I will start writing again reasonably soon. I've got a vague idea. I've got a character, really. I think I'm, I'm going to write a non-series novel next. Okay. And I've got the character for that, but I haven't started doing any work, really. And there's a collection of short stories coming out in November. I mean, all of these have been around for a while. 
but most of them have never been published in the UK, uh, mostly in Ellery Quinn's Mystery Magazine uh, in the United States, which okay. you can buy here if you look hard enough for it, but you know you won't find it in W.H. Smith, for instance. So these stories will be um, largely new to uh, British readership. And I think four of them are about Zoe, the detective character from my earlier novels. And there's one Slamhouse story, and the others are um, include a couple of quite lengthy stories, which are just you know ideas that came to me. Just kind of, I, I don't want to spend too much time thinking about COVID because you know I think we're all a little bit COVID sick of talking about it. But just out of interest, did it have any impact on you and your ability to write? I found that some people said that it really put a bit of a damper on their creative process, whereas others said that actually it was fine. How was it for you? More fine than not. I mean, I, initially, I didn't have any great difficulty and it didn't disrupt my normal lifestyle very much. You know, it didn't disrupt my working patterns. I just carried on doing what I'd always been doing. But towards the end, I mean, the beginning of this year was, was difficult. There was loss in the family and impacts of that. It made the writing process difficult for a while. It went much more slowly than I would have expected. And I was finding it hard. But as often happens with books, I mean, I know that there are always passages which... I find really difficult to write, and which will take me, you know, weeks and weeks to get through. And other bits, you know, seem like a breeze by comparison. But, you know, once I get to the end of a book and look back, I can't remember which was which. Mm-hmm. You know, that it doesn't feel to me like, you know, I, I can't see the difference between the two different modes of writing. And I, I hope that's true of this one too. And certainly nobody who's read it yet has mentioned that you were, you were having trouble with this one. You know? So I think that whatever the actual difficulties involved, the, the process will get you there in the end. Fantastic. Well, time's flown and I feel like we've covered a lot of different things. Thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's been absolutely lovely. It's been lovely to see you. Um, yes, that's although, although people are listening won't, won't be able to see you, but we have been recording this on video, so it'd be really nice to see you and lovely to find out a little bit more about your background. And best of luck with everything you're working on and enjoy this short break. Thank you so much, Sarah. I will. And uh, good luck at the bookshop. Thank you. All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.